Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That that way. Way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your random bump in the night, Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This is a special episode, folks. I have an insanely long list of horror movies to watch. It's around 300 movies long, it's intimidating, and it's been collecting dust. Normally, I'll choose what movies to watch, and a lot of the time, I don't even watch movies on that colossal list. Not this episode. This episode of Blank is the Killer is brought to you by the man, the myth, the legend, Aaron Jesus. That's right. Every movie I watched was chosen randomly from my big old list using a random number generator. This episode features Maximum Cage big pigs, and deadly greed. Climb down into this well with me while we go over some moving pictures. Number one, Vampire's Kiss, 1988, directed by Robert Bierman. A literary agent named Peter Lowe is slowly losing his mind. His descent into insanity speeds up after he takes a girl home to his place and a bat flies into his apartment. After this event, Peter meets another girl who appears to be a vampire. She bites him. Peter's grip on reality loosens. He believes he's a vampire. He terrorizes his assistant Alba. Peter rips Alba's shirt open and knocks her down, causing her to lose consciousness. Peter tries to kill himself with a gun Alba had, but survives since the gun was filled with blanks. Hey, everyone, sorry to interrupt this summary, but blanks can totally kill you. Don't goof around with a gun, even if it's loaded with blanks. Back to the summary. Peter goes to a nightclub and murders a woman by biting her neck. Alba believes Peter forced himself on her. Her brother is enraged by this. They go and find Peter. Alba's brother kills Peter by driving a wooden stake Peter was holding into his chest. Peter Lowe and Alba's brother are the killers. The bro is being counted as a killer because he kills a dude that really needed some help. If you have never heard of this movie, let me provide you with another summary of Vampire's Kiss. Nicolas Cage acts crazier than ever and goes full on Looney Tunes once he believes he's a vampire. Yep, I'm willing to bet most of you listening know that Vampire's Kiss is Nicolas Cage's vampire freakout movie where a ridiculous amount of great Nicolas Cage faces and tantrums come from. I didn't realize just how many of the cage freakout scenes I've seen over the years were in this movie. I can honestly say that at least 33.3% of Vampire's Kiss is Nicolas Cage freaking out. 
I wouldn't be surprised to find out that percentage is higher. Even before Cage is supposed to believe he's a vampire, he overacts and comes off as a lunatic. It took me a good third of the movie to figure out what kind of accent Cage was going for. At first, I thought he was trying to sound British. I slowly came to the realization that he was going for more of a rich, East Coast douchebag voice. He kind of sounds like Donald Trump. Cage's cadence as Peter Lowe is so odd and alien. Due to Cage's performance, Peter Lowe is a cartoon man from the moment he appears on screen. This is a good thing for Cage fans. I'm personally a fan of Unhinged Cage, and in Vampire's Kiss, he's at his zaniest. I haven't seen the Wicker Man remake yet. I've seen clips of it. Based on those clips, there is no way Wicker Man Cage is as nuts and over-the-top as Vampire's Kiss. That's how completely unhinged Vampire's Kiss Cage is. At multiple points in the movie, I was laughing out loud, not due to the great comedic writing, situations, or visual gags, but due to Cage just going all out. If you don't like Cage, you're going to hate Vampire's Kiss. Make no mistake, this is not a good movie. This is a feature-length Nick Cage meme. During regular conversations with characters, he makes ridiculous faces. His movements are erratic. He shouts the entire alphabet at one point. I honestly can't believe the two movies he was in before Vampire's Kiss were Moonstruck and Raising Arizona. Now that I've talked about Nicolas Cage more than the movie itself, how's the rest of Vampire's Kiss? It's weird. The score is overtly jazzy. When Cage isn't on screen, it's a long establishing shot. I swear that establishing footage of Lowe's apartment makes up at least 10 minutes of the movie. The acting besides Cage, Maria Conchita Alonso played Alba and she does alright for someone that had to try and act opposite Psycho Cage. Jennifer Beals is fine as the vampire who's not actually a vampire. The gore, it's your standard bright red blood coming out of a neck. The wooden stake kill looks fine. The bat that enters Lowe's apartment is amazing. Well, amazing is the wrong word. It's an obvious puppet. I guess hilarious is the word I was looking for. There are POV shots from right behind the top of the bat's head, which I heavily enjoyed. If you hate Nicolas Cage, do not watch Vampire's Kiss. If you love Cage or just want to see someone give one of the worst performances of all time, check out Vampire's Kiss. The performance alone is compelling for all the wrong reasons. Spoilers, Cage eats a live cockroach. Allegedly he had to do multiple takes of that. Number two, Cat People, 1982, directed by Paul Schrader. Irina meets her estranged brother, Paul, in New Orleans. A prostitute is attacked by a panther. Oliver and his team from the zoo capture the panther. Paul is missing. The panther kills one of the zoo workers and escapes. Paul shows back up. Irina, a virgin, is into Oliver, who kind of has a girlfriend named Alice. Paul wants to bang his sister. Irina runs away. Police inspect Paul's house, and it's revealed Paul is a serial killer. They think he feeds his victims to a panther. Irina hangs out with Oliver. Paul shows up again. He explains to Irina that they are cat people. They can do it with their own species, but if they have sex with a normal human, they turn into panthers. They can only transform back into a human form after they kill someone. 
Paul turns into a panther and attacks Oliver. Alice shoots and kills Paul. Irina and Oliver do the deed. Irina turns into a panther and ends up killing a nice old man that's a friend of Oliver's. Irina then stalks Alice. Irina begs Oliver to kill her. He won't, so she suggests sex again so she can stay in panther form. Some time passes and Oliver is back with Alice. Irina, in panther form, is in a cage at the zoo. Paul and Irina are the killers. I thought I could shorten that summary, but the big ol' cat people exposition dump was a necessary addition. So the cat people turn into panthers after doing it with humans and can only turn back into human form after killing someone? Yep. Then how did Paul and Irina sometimes turn to and from panthers without banging or murdering? I don't know, I'm not a cat person expert. Paul is the only source of information, and that guy is a creep that's into his sister. Can't trust that guy. Cat People is loosely based on a 1942 movie of the same name that I have not seen. Maybe someday. Cat People, the 1982 version that I watched, starts with a surreal shot of skeletons in red sand as someone that sounds like David Bowie sings and hums a lot. Wait a minute, that is David Bowie. David Bowie did the theme song for Cat People. There's a decent chance that you've heard it. It's called Cat People, in parentheses, putting out fire. You know that song that goes, putting out fire with gasoline. No one attempts to put out fire with gasoline in Cat People. Wanted to clear that up before there was confusion. Oh, another little known musician named Giorgio Moroder did the score, including the theme, which Bowie wrote and sung lyrics for. Who's in this? More people than you'd think. Malcolm McDowell played Paul. One of my favorite scenes is when he jumps up by Irina's bed in true cat-like fashion to peep on her while she's sleeping. He revealed that the scene where he leaps on the bed in cat-like fashion was shot with him jumping off the bed. Then they ran the film backward. That's pulled from IMDb Trivia. Thanks, IMDb Trivia. McDowell's fine in this. Everyone's acting is passable. No one is all that impressive. Natasha Kinski played Irina. She's definitely the weakest actor of the bunch. Early on in the movie, I realized that whenever she talked, she kind of looked like Nick Kroll. She's supposed to be the sexy lead, and I found her attractive until the Kroll revelation. John Hurd played Oliver. I know him as Kevin McAllister's dad. Annette O'Toole played Alice. She looked really familiar to me, and it turns out the only thing I've seen her in is the original made-for-TV It movie. She played adult Beverly in that. Ed Bagley Jr. played the zoo dude that gets his arm ripped off. I'm going to stop listing actors. It's boring. Bagley losing his arm and her life is way more comedic than it should be. Panther Paul is a grumpy kitty in a cage that Bagley is trying to clean. Since Paulther won't cooperate, Bagley attempts to use a short electric prodder to make the feline submit to his will. It doesn't go well. Turns out trying to poke an agitated panther with a short prodder is a really bad idea. It's almost like you shouldn't put your arm into panther chomp range. 
This scene is supposed to be disturbing, but since Bagley only loses his arm due to doing something incredibly idiotic, all I could think was, what did you expect? The gore for the arm rip is solid, so is the gore for an ankle slash the prostitute receives. The dead bodies that are shown are also well done. A lot of great practical effects. The transformation scenes are pretty good. The panthers pop out of their fleshy casings. Irina to panther is the transformation scene that shows the most, and it's almost better than some of the famous werewolf transformation scenes from the past. Almost. It does miss the mark by a little though, since the transformation goes from, oh cool, she's turning into a panther, to an obvious cut to a live panther. It's still neat. Practical effects and real big kitty cats. Since those were used, the movie still looks fantastic. Kudos there. Oliver sucks. He has a cool girlfriend named Alice that doesn't look anything like Nick Kroll. But is he happy with this woman who's way better than him? No. He wants to be with Weird Cat Girl. The ending of Cat People sucks solely because Alice still ends up with Oliver. You can do way better, Alice. You don't need to settle for cheating ass Mr. McAllister. Maybe they weren't officially a thing? I don't know. She does give him a clear we're dating kiss before he runs off with Irina. At one point, Oliver wakes up to find a naked, blood-covered Irina staring at him. She screams, don't look at me, and runs off. You know, that's a whole box full of red flags. He's still into it, though. You're real self-destructive, Oliver. I hate that everything works out for him in the end. I don't think Cat People is that great. It's a two-hour movie that's somewhat entertaining, but I think you can spend your time watching better movies. I'm glad I saw it, but unless you're a super fan of one of the actors I mentioned, give it a pass and watch Scooby-Doo Zombie Island instead. It's basically the same movie. One last thing regarding Cat People. The zoo in the movie is awful. All the animals are in these tiny, concrete enclosures. Poor animals. Number 3, Razorback, 1984, directed by Russell McCulhey. In Australia, a giant boar kills Jake's grandson. No one believes Jake. Time passes and Beth, an American wildlife reporter, travels to Australia to do a story on the hunting and processing of animals. After Beth has a bad run-in with two brothers named Dicko and Benny, the giant boar shows up and kills her. Beth's husband Carl goes to Australia to look for her. Carl ends up with Dicko and Benny who abandon him in the wilderness. Carl eventually makes it to a woman named Sarah's house. Jake is there. Jake is trying to kill the giant boar. The brothers wound Jake and leave him for dead. The giant boar kills him. Carl interrogates Benny and kills him. Carl then looks for Dicko. The giant boar shows up and kills Dicko. Carl and the giant boar battle. Carl is able to kill the giant boar with the help of a giant factory fan. The giant boar is the killer. Dicko and Benny don't technically kill anyone, but they leave multiple people for dead. That's why I'm not putting Carl on the list. Carl's wife Beth and Jake are both dead because of the brothers. Should they be on the list then? I'd say in most movies where the villains leave a character for dead, the character that's left either dies from wounds inflicted by the villains or survives and kills the villains. 
characters being left for dead then killed by a giant boar hasn't come up before. I'm putting the brothers on the list. They intended for their victims to die. Benny, Dicko, and the giant boar are the killers. That feels right. You know what doesn't feel right? The title of the movie. Razorback is a stupid title. The movie should have been called Big Pig. I exclusively referred to the giant boar and movie as Big Pig during my watch. In seriousness, Razorback is a better title. I just think it's a lot of fun to say Big Pig. Razorback is a cross between Mad Max, Jaws, and Evil Dead. Mad Max because it's set in Australia. The entire color palette for the movie is brown. The brothers feel plucked directly from that series. Their kangaroo hunting truck wouldn't look out of place in a post-apocalyptic world. And the director of photography, Dean Semler, was hired due to his work on Mad Max 2. Evil Dead, due to a bunch of zaniness, including boar blood splatter, hallucinations involving a pig-faced lady and skeletal horse monster things, and Carl's long-sleeved blue button-up shirt. The biggest and most obvious influence is Jaws. Instead of a giant shark being the terror, it's a big pig. Razorback includes the dolly zoom and a sequence where Carl is sliding down an incline towards the boar's mouth. There are probably more references, but those two were the most obvious homages to Jaws. I don't know if homage is the right word here. It might be ripoff. That's okay, though. Jaws ripoffs are fun. I recommend 1976's Grizzly and Aja's Piranha 3D if you're looking for some good Jaws ripoffs. Razorback 2. Razorback is a bizarre movie. The people involved could have simply slapped together a movie about a big pig that terrorizes people in Australia and made a quick buck. Instead, this weird, surreal, all-over-the-place movie was created. Sure, some things are by-the-book and boring, like the repetitive score, but other things are artsy and experimental? What am I talking about? Razorback has some of the strangest editing I've ever seen. There are awkward cuts all over the place. For example, Jake yells and then there is a transition to the next scene while a freeze frame of Jake's head is still shown yelling over the transition. Besides that, there are a lot of erratic cuts throughout the movie. A lot of scenes end earlier than you'd expect. Not only is the editing avant-garde, so is a lot of the cinematography. I didn't expect anything but straightforward wide shots of mostly everything in this movie. So when shots with odd angles, lighting, and content kept popping up, I was intrigued. I'm not sure why the aspect ratio kept changing, but it only bothered me the first couple times it changed. Should the movie have kept one aspect ratio? Yeah, but it's fine. There's a lot of trippy effects in the movie, like scenes with multiple after images. The practical effects work in Razorback is fantastic. Big Pig, Pig Face Lady, Skeletal Monstrosities, and Gore all look solid. I did not expect for the effects work and editing around the Big Pig to be so on point. Bob McCarran designed six boars for the film. At least one full-size animatronic Big Pig was created. The makeup and costuming is also excellent. Dicko and Benny are two of the grossest looking characters I've ever seen. They're the real villains in this movie. 
Your normal horror movie formula introduces a final girl after the movie opens with a kill. Grandson is killed. Beth, the final girl, arrives. Dicko is about to force himself on Beth. Big Pig moseys on over to save the day. Dicko and his terrible brother run off. Beth is brutally murdered by Big Pig. Wait, what? You technically don't see her die on screen at this point, so I thought there would be a reveal that she was still alive. That is, until the engagement ring Carl gave her is found in some bored dookie. I was sure that the movie was going to end with Carl giving the ring to Sarah, since trauma bonding. No other woman is going to believe that he tussled with the biggest piggest, but the movie just ends with them embracing after the pig hits the fan. I'm not sure why I thought Big Pig would save Beth. The beast had already murdered a blonde child. Beth was also blonde. He hates these blondes. Stay away from the blondes. Dicko's kind of blonde. Jake's hair is gray when he's killed, but it was probably blonde at some point. Duran Duran plays on the radio while Beth's driving. Mulcahy, the director, directed their Hungry Like the Wolf video, which got him the offer to direct Razorback. That explains a lot of the editing and shot styles. If you're curious about my feelings towards Duran Duran, I'm a fan. I didn't hit on the acting yet. It's hammy. Get it? Hammy. Anyway, Razorback is a chaotic Australian exploitation, aka Ozploitation movie that's overflowing with creativity and weirdness. It's a great movie to watch with some pals. Make sure you are watching Razorback from 1984 if you look for this. There is a 2017 movie called Boar that looks similar. I watched about 15 minutes of that then decided to watch something else. I wasn't feeling it at the time. Maybe I'll give Boar another shot someday. If you've seen that one and recommend it, holler at your boy. Number 4. They're Watching, 2016, directed by Jay Lender and Micah Wright. A reality show crew from America returns to Moldova to check on Becky, a woman who bought a rundown house there. The crew consists of Alex, Greg, Kate, Sarah, and their guide, Vladimir. Sarah is the newbie whose uncle got her the job. Greg and Sarah go to a church and film a funeral after being told to leave their cameras outside. The townsfolk dislike the crew because of this. The crew goes to a bar and drinks with the townsfolk. Sarah then yells witch in the native tongue, which riles the townsfolk. The crew and Vladimir go to Becky's to finish the show. The townsfolk destroy their car. Vladimir and Kate are killed. It's revealed that Becky is a witch. She killed Vladimir, Kate, and her ex-boyfriend. A constable kills Sarah. Becky kills a bunch of townsfolk and Greg. Becky lets Alex live to show everyone what happened. Becky and a constable are the killers. I don't even want to put the constable on the list. Sarah is one of the most annoying, idiotic, and obnoxious characters to ever appear in a movie. She only gets her job due to nepotism. She constantly ruins footage by talking. Sarah knows that the town is highly superstitious and fears witches, yet she decides the best insult to yell at Kate is witch. I'm glad Sarah dies. She has no redeeming qualities. At one point in the movie, she's like, there's no Starbucks here. How will I survive? You know that you can drink coffee that's not Starbucks, right, Sarah? Sarah is the worst. But to be fair, 
It was a close race for that title. Alex is a real turd. After the first 15 minutes of the film, I wanted to see him receive some over-the-top brutal comeuppance. As their watching goes on, Alex becomes one of the more likable characters solely because everyone else sucks. At least Alex didn't sneak cameras into a church after being explicitly asked not to, which is what Sarah and Greg do. Greg is a loser too. A big part of the movie revolves around him and Sarah becoming a thing. It's boring. I had no investment in their relationship. One last thing on the church invasion. A funeral service begins. Sarah and Greg sit quietly and spectate. Nope. They loudly blabber on and show a complete lack of respect for the service. These people are terrible. Kate's an okay character. She's always pissed off and for good reason. She's the lead on the production team and has to work with a bunch of screw-ups. She justifiably yells at Sarah multiple times since Sarah can't shut her mouth when the cameras are rolling. So what if she banged Becky's boyfriend? The best character in the movie by a country mile is Vladimir. He's the only truly likable character in the entire movie that's not a witch. He's charismatic and only trying to help. If he wants to try and smuggle heroin into Moldova, that's his business. On the scale of evil, smuggling heroin is much lower than ruining multiple takes by talking. Becky is also likable. I just wish she didn't kill my boy, Vladimir. Their watching is a found footage movie. Does it ever actually feel like found footage? Not at all. You know what found footage shouldn't have? A score. When the crew arrives in town where everything takes place, eerie music starts playing. Cat called this out. Why would found footage have music? I had to inform her that most little towns in Moldova constantly have spooky music playing at all hours of the day. I thought everyone knew that. Joke aside, why is it scored? I mean, you can argue that Alex added the score after editing everything together, but that doesn't help my immersion in the least. Besides the included score, a lot of the camera work doesn't feel genuine. Shot angles are often incorrect. Characters disappear. The crew has a small van. They load up everyone into the five-seater van and go to Becky's with Kate, Vladimir, and Sarah in the back seat. They then head back to town with only Vladimir and Sarah in the back seat. Kate disappears. She's supposed to be in the van. I guess they just forgot that she needed to be in the back seat shot on the way back. Since our main three protagonist characters are bland, selfish, trash people, their acting as aloof douches completely works. I believe these people are real, and I hate them. Kate's performance leaned a little too far into always angry, hard-ass boss, but at least she was entertaining. The only actor I'm going to name drop is Dmitry Diachenko, and that's because he was fantastic as Vladimir. He brought the perfect level of charm and sleaze. I have no clue why people like their watching. Okay, that statement is a bit disingenuous. I could see people finding the witch rampage at the end fun. Problem is, I checked out way before their watching made it to the witch rampage. Everything up until the rampage is a slog. The wait is not worth the horrible CGI effects work. Even if the effects were amazing and practical, it still wouldn't be worth sitting through the beginning of this movie. Now, if their watching was fun up until the crazy bad CGI bloodfest at the end, I probably would be recommending this movie. That's the problem. 
The climax of their watching is basically a video an amateur special effects team would upload on YouTube. I love those types of videos. Thing is, when I see them on YouTube, I don't have to sit through a sleep-inducing hour lead-up that's chock full of insufferable characters. I will say there are a lot of creative, fun kills during the Witch Rampage. People ripped in half by magic, exploded, impaled, turned into frogs, attacked by said frogs, yada yada. The movie needed that ending camp energy throughout its runtime. Oh, pet warning, I guess. A dog that's nice to Alex randomly bites him, so the constable shoots the dog. It's whatever. I want to point out that I'm basically done talking about this movie and haven't even brought up Afghanistan. What does that have to do with anything? Alex was covering stuff in Afghanistan? This is brought up multiple times. Eventually, Alex reveals what happened in Afghanistan, but him pouring his guts out feels forced and unnecessary. No one cares. I'd say at least 10 minutes of the movie is spent referencing Alex's adventures in Afghanistan. This hour and a half movie felt like years. Don't watch They're Watching. It fails at being an immersive found footage movie. It fails at being entertaining. It fails at making you care about any characters but Vladimir. I stopped caring about the movie long before the obnoxious Americans were finally killed. Their watching even starts off with Sarah's death. The constable plants an axe in her face. Plants an axe in her face is me being generous because the axe planning didn't sell in the least. Sarah sucks the axe from the constable's hands into her forehead at an impossible angle. If R and Jesus didn't take the wheel for this episode, I probably would have bailed right there. I thought that it would be revealed that she was fake murdered on a reality show and the awfulness of the effect was the result of it being fake. Boy was I wrong. IMDB says the writers describe this film as a workplace comedy that goes horribly wrong, not a horror movie. Aren't comedies supposed to be funny? Avoid their watching like the plague. Number 5, Tumbad, 2018, directed by Rahi Anil Barvi and Anand Gandhi. Vinayak lives with his mom, brother, and an old monster woman. His mom is the mistress of a guy that lives in a mansion in Tumbad. The guy dies. Vinayak brings up a vast fortune that's supposed to be in the mansion. The fortune isn't supposed to be brought up. His brother falls out of a tree and dies right after. Vinayak learns that the old woman is his grandmother. Vinayak and his mom leave Tumbad. Fifteen years later, Vinayak returns. His grandma tells him where to find the fortune in return for a mercy killing. Vinayak keeps going to the mansion and returning with gold coins. He sells them to a guy. The guy wants in on the coins and goes looking for them himself. He climbs down a well in the mansion into a weird area that ends up being a womb. He's then attacked by Hastar, a monster. Vinayak then shows that he steals coins from Hastar using a doll made of dough as a distraction. He mercy kills the guy. Years pass and Vinayak is getting too old to steal coins. He starts training his son. His son has an idea that will get them more coins. They bring a bunch of dough dolls into the womb. To Vinayak's horror, a Hastar is spawned for each doll. Vinayak sacrifices himself so his son lives. His son mercy kills him. Greed is the killer. Greed? Yep. Greed. What about Hastar or Tree Tumbles? Why aren't they killers? The tree tumble only happens because of greed and a curse surrounding it. Hastar? He doesn't kill anyone. If Hastar gets his grubby little hands on you, 
you live forever with the knowledge of how to steal coins from him. It's a fate worse than death since you're turned into a monstrous abomination. But hey, immortality, right? I'm going to try and give some more context for the events of Tumbad. There was a goddess of prosperity who gave birth to 160 million gods. Her firstborn was Hestar, who was a greedy little moocher. He wanted all her gold and food. He stole all the gold, but before he could get all the food, the other gods attacked. Goddess Mom saved Hestar on the condition that no one worships the little rascal and that he sleeps in her womb for all eternity. Tombod provides all that information as an exposition dump at the beginning of the movie. It's portrayed with cool stone engravings. Tombod is a visually stunning film. The production design is incredible. Some of the scenes were filmed at actual historic locations that have existed for hundreds of years. A fort called Shaniwar Wada was used as the front entrance of the mansion. The mixture of fantastic sets and real locations is perfect. A lot of the movie was shot during monsoon seasons. Yeah, seasons. Tumbad was shot over six years. Whenever it wasn't rainy enough, artificial rain was also used. The design for the womb, Hastar, and those Hastar attacked are astounding. CGI is used for Hastar and parts of the monster people he creates, but even when there is CGI, the designs and the rest of the effects work accompanying the digital parts are so incredible that everything looks great. Gore? There isn't a lot of traditional horror movie gore. Sure, Monster Grandma pulls some iron spikes out of her face. Guy that follows Vinayak looks all kinds of messed up, and there are some scratches. Everything shown looks good. Don't get me wrong, I'm fine with the level of gore in this movie. Acting? It's hard to critique acting when you aren't a native speaker of the language a movie is in, but I'll say that a lot of iffy performances transcended the language barrier. Vinayak's mom and kid brother weren't great. There's a random British soldier that was pretty bad. I dug Soham Shah as older Vinayak. Vinayak's wife and mistress, played by Anita Dati and Ronjina Chakraborty, respectively, were also solid. Tumbad is an Indian movie and does include a song regarding the plot that is played over some montages. I was surprised by the addition of a Bollywood jam, but it works. During parts of the movie where people were smoking, there was a warning in the bottom left of the screen that said, Smoking is hazardous to your health. There is no kissing in the movie, sex is implied, but there's no nudity. I found the little cultural differences in the film really interesting. I recommend checking out Tumbad if you're in the mood for a fantastic looking Indian movie about the consequences of greed. Your eyes will love all the locations and monsters. Check it out. Number 6, Altered, 2006, directed by Eduardo Sanchez. A group of country boys, Duke, Otis, and Cody, kidnap an alien and take it to their friend Wyatt's garage. Turns out all of them, and Cody's brother, were abducted and experimented on by aliens. Cody's brother didn't make it back, so Cody, Duke, and Otis rightfully want revenge. Wyatt's girlfriend Hope is also there. Things don't go well. Members of the group are infected by the alien, a sheriff pops up, people start dying, the sheriff accidentally shoots himself and dies. 
Wyatt, Hope, and a very infected Cody are the only ones left alive. Hope shoots the alien in the head, and Wyatt mercy kills Cody. More aliens come. Hope and Wyatt hide in the basement and blow up the house. A bunch of aliens die in the explosion, and a spaceship flies off. Wyatt and Hope then drive off in a van. The alien and improper firearm handling are the killers. R in Jesus, why have you forsaken me? Why did you decide to smite me with Altered? Altered is a bad movie. It features some of the worst acting I have ever witnessed. Almost everyone in the movie is absolutely terrible. The worst actor of the bunch is the main character, Wyatt, who's played by Adam Kaufman. I don't know why the most prominent role was given to the worst actor. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Everyone is bad, but Mr. Kaufman is the worst. Altered was directed by Eduardo Sanchez. He was half of the directing duo that brought us the original Blair Witch Project. I guess that's why Altered at least looks competent. Before I jump into more negativity, I want to give props to the special effects team. The special effects work in Altered is incredible. Spectral Motion Inc. was in charge of the effects. The effects are practical and jaw-dropping. The alien looks fantastic. The gory infected wounds are some of the gnarliest, best-looking horror wounds I've ever seen. Cody turning into a Brundlefly-esque monstrosity looks amazing. The multiple instances of people's intestines being outside of their bodies and weird little alien clicker things all look perfect. The clickers are especially cool. There are these bony looking homing devices the aliens use. Part of me wants to recommend this movie solely due to how amazing the effects work is. I'm pouring the biggest bucket of kudos I have onto Spectral Motion Inc. Without them, Altered would be unwatchable. Back to being negative. Even though the pulled out intestines look great, it's laughably ridiculous when the friends burst in on the alien pulling out Otis's guts like a magician pulls out tied together handkerchiefs from a top half. The way the alien stops tugging on the intestines after the friends catch him came off like the humans just caught the alien jacking it. It's hilarious. How do the friends try to save Otis? The friends and the sheriff tackle the alien which ends with the sheriff shooting himself. After the intestines are wrestled from the alien, everyone's like, Just hold on to those, Otis. You'll be okay, buddy. Why didn't they just shoot the alien? I think the friends wanted to keep the alien alive so they could lure and kill more aliens or something. I don't know. The plot is really stupid. Besides the stupid plot, there are a lot of guns in this movie, and none of the awful stock sounds that are used ever match up with the correct gun. When Wyatt puts down Cody... It should be a scene that fills the viewer with feels, but due to the awful acting and completely unedited stock gunshot sound, Cody's mercy killing made me laugh out loud. Besides having better acting and sound design, having likable characters would have also helped me care about what was happening. I couldn't care less about any of the friends. The only semi-likable characters are Hope and the Sheriff. Part of me was rooting for the alien due to how bland the friend characters were. Don't bother with Altered. Maybe look up a special effects highlight reel from it though. The effects are truly amazing. Number 7. Back with Brina. The third season of The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina is out now. This will be pretty spoiler free. Sabrina is the worst. 
I have no idea how she has any friends. Whenever her friends are having fun, being normal high schoolers, Sabrina pops up and makes them go on perilous adventures. These normies don't have magic, Sabrina. Your homies could easily die painful deaths on these outings. I guess the one girl, Ross, kinda has magic. The Cunning, which seems like a straight ripoff of The Shining, but that power doesn't really help her out all that much. Throughout the entire series, Sabrina forces herself into a group, then makes the group she invaded do things her way. She doesn't care if the group she joined has been eating chocolate ice cream for generations. She'll make them eat vanilla. At one point, Sabrina is supposed to find something. Does she make an effort to locate the thing she's looking for? Nope, she makes her cousin Ambrose do all the work while she eats lunch. We all love lunch, Sabrina, but sometimes you have obligations. It makes complete sense that Sabrina is the daughter of Satan. I can't think of a more sinister, selfish person who has a complete disregard for the rules. A light spoiler, Sabrina has to collect some souls of people that made deals with the devil. She lets a dude go to heaven. Sabrina, that dude literally made a deal. It was a deal to be a great chess player. It was a completely self-indulgent deal. He didn't make it to save his cancer-ridden mom or something noble. Sabrina is brat incarnate. I'm still enjoying the show. It's junk food television. It doesn't really have any substance, but it's entertaining and spooky at times. I'll give more spoiler thoughts on the next episode after I finish it. I just had to rant about how awful Sabrina is. Again. That's a wrap on the first ever Blank is the Killer, RN Jesus, Episode 63, Maximum Cage, Big Pigs, and Deadly Greed. I loved not having to choose the movies. You won't believe how much time I saved when deciding what to watch. Remember walking around Blockbuster for an hour? I missed that actually. Anyway, Thanks for listening. If you dug the podcast, leave a rating on iTunes. Want to message me? Email blankisthekiller at gmail.com. Thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast. Check out their network. I'll be back with another RN Jesus episode on February 9th. Until then, make sure not to run around superstitious villages yelling witch like some kind of dingbat.